Ukraine and the special media operation that has Russian journalists under control. Downing Street 1, Fleet Street nil. The Times of London crumbles under political pressure. Plus, the Julian Assange case and how authoritarian regimes are using it to their advantage. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we provide explanatory journalism about journalism and the global news media. It's now been four months, more than 100 days, since Russia invaded Ukraine, a war that looks like it could last for years. The propaganda around this conflict is also escalating, shifting in both tone and content. In Russia, independent journalism has all but disappeared, clearing the way for the Kremlin's narrative to go unopposed. State-controlled television channels and newspapers serve as the Putin government's messengers. They've got the country on a war footing while maintaining the rhetorical illusion that Russian forces aren't even in a war, just a special military operation. And they are mocking the parade of Western leaders making visits to the Ukrainian capital. Our starting point this week is Kiev. They keep rolling into Kiev. World leaders, Hollywood celebrities, lining up to meet with President Volodymyr Zelensky, signaling their support, providing ammunition for the information war. The leaders of Italy, France, Germany, and Romania visited the president of Ukraine in Kiev Thursday. But Ukrainians are now more than 100 days into this. And the photo ops cannot obscure the fact that Russia controls 20% of their country. Not that the facts are of particular interest to Russian news channels that have ridiculed Zelensky all along and have recently altered their messaging, refined it, for audiences at home and abroad. In the beginning of the war, it was about Ukrainian politicians, it was about Ukrainian President Zelensky. Lots of jokes trying to, to make him look stupid or not really important. And now it's about world leaders, it's about other countries, it's not only about Ukraine. They are making fun of Macron and Zelensky hugging. They are saying also that Johnson has a lot of problems inside of his own country and he uses Ukraine for his own purposes. They are saying that there is no war in Ukraine. If the leaders of big European countries are visiting Ukraine right now, it means that there has not been any war there going on. And this is the proof for the audience of these propaganda channels that Listen, guys, this is a special military operation. It's concentrated on the east of Ukraine. And quite uh, shockingly, Russia is setting up uh, information uh, centers, which are really large TV screens on trucks that they roll up into even places as devastated as Mariupol. And uh, when you're in a queue in uh, Mariupol waiting for food, you will be shown such programs. 
being told that you've been liberated against fascism as you look around the devastated landscape of your city. And then critically, they're really uh, making the point that the economic uh, degradation of the global system caused by the sanctions is really biting. Challenging the West to say, okay, you've supported Ukraine, but the price of gas is so high. Do you really want to keep you know, your, your generosity towards Ukraine? What has not changed is Russia's insistence that this is not a war, just a special military operation. It is a term that grows more absurd with every bomb that falls, every life that is lost. But Russia's foreign minister was sticking to that story in an interview he recently gave the BBC. The Kremlin seldom grants such interviews. This one was conducted in Russian, and Sergei Lavrov seemed better prepared for the BBC than the BBC was for him. I cannot say that Ravlov fully succeeded with that, but he was pretty close to guiding the interview because Lavrov was not made to answer actually any question from the anchor. And that's why I think this interview was a kind of failure, because when the anchor tries to stick to neutral standards, he is predicting that his respondent will answer these questions and will play within the same rules of the game. But Lavrov was playing his own game. The Lavrov interview was a masterful political piece. He knows how to work the interview. He doesn't accept any of the counter questions. He denies all the facts. He talks over any questions he doesn't agree with. He challenges the journalists back. And notably, it was conducted in Russian, and we can assume it was required to be conducted in Russian. So it, it must be that it was intended to be aired in the Russian uh, uh, audience. And of course, you're asking, why would he speak with the uh, BBC at all? I would tell you, this is for Russian propaganda channels, Telegram channels and, um, and, and, and other um, media organizations connected with Kremlin, to quote Lavrov and to show Russians how strong and smart and authoritative he is. And they are, they are now laughing at BBC and uh, adoring Sergei Lavrov, one of the main faces of this, of this terrible war. Going back to the special military operation, the Orwellian absurdity of that term, more and more cracks are starting to show on the Russian airwaves. It remains technically illegal to call it a war, yet news anchors are allowed to frame Ukraine as part of a larger war on NATO or war on the West. And despite the orders from on high and all those obedient Russian journalists, sometimes the truth just slips out. Fleeting moments of accuracy in the Kremlin-controlled news media accidental ones. It's interesting that it, it seeps through from time to time. Talk shows refer to war correspondents being on the scene, which was an interesting uh, usage. Even the, the Russian ambassador in London. We have a prolongation of war. 
may have, may have slipped to use that term. So it slips out, but if you were an activist, or if you used it purposefully, you would uh, potentially suffer consequences. It's done with kind of wing. Like everybody understands in Russia that it's, it is a war. So we are trying to save them, the, the outsiders, with all these wars. And it gives ordinary people a feel that they belong to something bigger. We are trying to play with the West, trying to deceive them. And we are ordinary Russians, we are part of this game. That makes us bigger. In Russia, where freedom of expression is under siege, and people have good reason to fear speaking freely to journalists and even pollsters, it is impossible to accurately measure public opinion. But even Russian opponents of the war in Ukraine concede that most of their fellow citizens support it. As for the more complicated questions of why and how much the Russian media have to do with that, those are things we may never really know. Listen, people want to believe that this is a special military operation. People want to trust their government, because if they don't, then they need to acknowledge that their country is killing civilians right now. That's why millions of Russians do not want to, to understand the reality. And it's more comfortable for them to believe this propaganda, to trust these liars and to feel themselves as just viewers, not participants. Are Russian people supporting the war because of the media or are they uh, uh, happily consuming the official line because they wish to receive it? Ukrainian friends, even they have said that the Russian uh, state media is, is so harsh and ferocious that even they get dizzy over time when they listen to it and lose their bearings. I think there is still a light hope that white Russian public will start doubting what is being delivered to them through official uh, sources of information. The number of Russian soldiers coming back home dead will be critical, or when uh, ordinary Russians will start feeling after effects of sanctions, they might start thinking at some point that the real picture of the war in Ukraine is different from what is being broadcasted on state TV channels. Now you see it, now you don't. An explosive news report is rippling across the world of British politics. It's the story of an illicit affair, corruption, scheming, and state censorship. Meenakshi Ravi is here with more. An article published by the Times of London on June 18th revealed that British Prime Minister Boris Johnson had tried to hire his now wife as his chief of staff back in 2018 when he was foreign secretary and was having an extramarital affair with her. The job comes with a hefty salary and it was only the strong disapproval of Johnson's advisors that scuppered his plans. That article managed to make it to some print copies of the Times but then disappeared from later editions and never made it to the paper's website. 10 Downing Street has since admitted that it demanded the Times pull the story even though there was no denial of the allegation and elements of the story had been published elsewhere before. The Times has offered no explanation for why it caved to the demands of the Prime Minister's office and the paper's readers are not letting this go. The comment sections across numerous other political articles have been jammed. 
Boris Johnson has been lurching from scandal to scandal, and British media outlets have broken numerous stories of prime ministerial parties during COVID lockdowns, corruption, infighting, and the erosion of government services. Johnson has survived, and the pushback from Downing Street against journalists has been aggressive. From not providing government representatives for media questioning, to ongoing pressure on news outlets like the BBC and Channel 4, to incidents like this, the Johnson government keeps going after the messengers. Thanks, Mina. It took a while, but the Me Too movement has finally come to the forefront in Greece. The threats faced by Greek women from sexual harassment to domestic violence are making headlines, including the ultimate form of gender violence, femicide, the intentional killing of women simply because they are women. 38 have been killed over the past 18 months, most often at the hands of current or ex-partners. Greece is one of Europe's most patriarchal societies, ranking dead last in the EU's Gender Equality Index, and that is reflected in the country's news media. The Listening Post's Flo Phillips now on femicide in Greece and the sometimes detrimental role that journalism has played there in the way such crimes have been reported. First came the pictures, a family in mourning. Then came the words spoken by the widowed husband. <laughs> A funeral tribute from a young father to his murdered wife as he held their baby. The baby's mother was a woman named Caroline Crouch and, as the story went, she was beaten and strangled to death in her Athens home by a gang of ruthless foreign robbers. It was a crime story made for television, with elements of glamour and gore almost too scripted to be believed, and the Greek media feasted on it. It satisfied all of Greek society's stereotypes. A beautiful family, the breadwinner, Bobis, a handsome, successful pilot, and his wife, Caroline. They lived in a beautiful masonette where they were bringing up their beautiful baby daughter. That would be enough to fulfill all societal norms of what a family should look like. But then, this perfect family is under attack by who? By armed foreign burglars. The Greek media turned that material into juicy content and the viewers into collective mourners. Then everything came crashing down. It took 37 days for the real story to come out. The revelation that Crouch was in fact murdered by her own husband left Greeks reeling. And yet the mainstream media, they weren't ready to let go of their narrative. The coverage of the facts was problematic. There was a reporter on Sky TV who, after Babis had confessed to the murder, still referred to him as the alleged suspect. She stated that at least he didn't cut her up. It was almost like he was giving the suspect an alibi 
instead of calling him out for this heinous crime. That happened because Babis was a son-in-law that everyone in Greek society wanted to have. It's just that he turned out to be a murderer. The more conservative wing of the Greek media were eager to justify his actions. Suddenly, Caroline was depicted as a foreign woman way too dynamic and vocal. And according to a TV psychologist, Babis was the one who had the ideal online profile that would get him many followers. Gender determines how the media research and report on a story, and it ends up being entirely confusing. It feels like mainstream media here often focused more on the woman forgetting the actual criminal. The victim was pretty, she was a kind person, a young mother. Greek television usually chooses to stick to journalistic cliches. And by choosing not to refer to these killings as femicides, we end up with coverage that murders the victim for a second time. The impact of femicide goes beyond the loss of life. These are crimes that tap into a collective fear, so how the media treat them really matters. Unfortunately, for many years now, the Greek media haven't helped to bring about a zero-tolerance culture for gender violence. Just the opposite. Like sound bites that are sympathetic to the murderer, coming from the police department. Stavros Belaskas was a senior officer on the Caroline Crouch case. That sound bite came to be known as the Belaskas Doctrine, advice delivered on camera on how to escape true justice, a life sentence, if you murder your wife. Just call the police and confess right away. There was no follow-up from the journalist, no pushback. Was it any coincidence then that, in the weeks after, more men came forward confessing to killing their partners? Here is yet another example of us journalists being caught by surprise. We weren't aware of the incredible social impact this statement would have, and we should have emphasized how important it was to address it. The journalist never questioned the statement or even triggered a dialogue around it. The murder of Caroline Crouch should not be seen in isolation. Feminist groups estimate that, over the past 10 years, gender-based violence has tripled in Greece. And currently, at least one woman dies at the hands of a man every month. Like Garafalia Sarako, pushed off the Folegandros cliffs by her boyfriend. Nectaria Maraki stabbed 16 times by her estranged husband. Odora Zaharia, gunned down by her former partner on the island of Rothos. But tune in to any of Greece's many popular TV shows and you'd be left guessing as to who the real victims are. In the case of Thora, the suspect's uncle got a lot of airtime to enhance the killer's profile. 
ανθρώπου. Θα ακούσετε να σα πει σε λίγο. Έχει οικογενειακές, είχε οικογενειακέ αρχέ που σεβόταν τη γυναίκα. Αγαπούσε and they always emphasize the fact that the suspect has never been in trouble with the authorities. The uncle was publicly expressing the other side of the story. He came on my show and blamed the woman, saying that her morals were questionable. You know, it's a relief for those of us who present shows like mine to be able to show viewers both sides of the argument, no matter how difficult it is for us as journalists. Because a coin always has two sides. The accused lives his own truth. Zina Kutsalini doesn't mince her words. She's a host for Star Channel and one of the country's most famous faces. For more than three decades, she's been part of the Greek media establishment in a country where entrenched patriarchal views have been slow to change. I believe that if all women unite and support each other, men will follow. To some extent, we are to blame for this current situation. When I present femicide on my show, do you know what I observe? I observe that if the blame is placed on the woman, women stop watching while men continue. Women don't have the strength of character to face their own truths. It's very important to be able to look yourself in the eye and tell yourself, it's your fault that you are putting up with your husband. Please, let's not blame everything on the patriarchy. When we talk about patriarchy, sexism or toxic masculinity in Greece, there's always this strange reaction. Sometimes it's laughter, but some women get abused for bringing these issues up and they're never mentioned on Greek television. I actually don't think I've heard the word patriarchy used on Greek TV in years. As it happens, the word patriarchy comes from Greek, patriarchia. It means rule of the father. And covering women, the violence they suffer, remains a challenge for Greek news organizations with their culture of male dominance to this day. And finally, Julian Assange is one step closer to an American prison. The UK government has agreed to extradite the WikiLeaks co-founder. He faces a sentence of up to 175 years. Julian Assange is guilty of exposing American secrets, including war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq, through classified documents that WikiLeaks published and then provided to news outlets around the world. Assange's backers have always maintained that this case is bigger than him, in that it sets a menacing precedent for journalism that is in the public interest. And the Assange case gives repressive regimes around the world a tailor-made talking point to use against their critics, including the US. Because if the Americans jail Assange for his work, why can't other political actors do the same to their journalists? We're leaving you now with a few examples of how those regimes play the Assange card whenever it suits them. And we'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. Вся история с Ассанжем это вопрос не сегодняшнего дня, а вообще вся история с его 
с гонениями на него, с травлей, с созданием ему нечеловеческих условий существования. Это предание забвению свободы слова и прав на распространение информации. Armenians will not have free uh, media here. Let's talk about Assange. How many years, sorry, how many years he spent in Ecuadorian embassy? And for what? And where is he now? For journalistic activity. You kept that person hostage, actually killing him morally and physically. You did it, not us, and now he's in prison. Assange's 